get the laser pointer. All right. Hi, everyone. So now I'm going to give you the lecture on primary immunodeficiencies, which are um, now have a, a couple of different names. You'll also hear them called monogenic diseases or more and more inborn errors of immunity. So as the name suggests, these are diseases in humans that are caused by mutation in a, in a single gene. So I like to start kind of big picture and, and think about um, the pipeline for analyzing these kinds of patients, because um, it's quite different from, for example, autoimmune diseases like you heard about from Dr. Laufer that are uh, affecting large numbers, larger populations of patients. These are rare diseases. Um, and so the way they're typically analyzed is it on a family by family basis. Um, so what investigators will do is recruit patients, usually pediatric patients who have a very severe immune phenotype. And that immune phenotype could be either recurrent infections, which is what we'll talk about mostly today. Those are primary immunodeficiencies. Or more and more, uh, there are larger numbers of diseases considered auto-inflammatory monogenic diseases. Um, but in either case, they're usually quite severe, present early in life. And investigators will re recruit these children as well as their typically unaffected or sometimes affected family members um, and, and study the genomes of these individuals, typically using whole exome sequencing and now more and more whole genome sequencing um, and filtering for variants that might be causative for the child's disease. So it's a very different sort of approach where it's a one by one family by family analysis looking for a highly deleterious gene mutation that would be quite rare in the general population. Um, so typically the DNA, you can receive blood samples, of course, and extract DNA, do whole exome sequencing. Um, and as you might expect, when you do these kinds of analyses, uh, there are many polymorphisms or SNPs, variants in the genome that differ from the ref reference genome. So um, investigators in this field will have to do a lot of work to try to convince themselves that the mutation or the variant you see in the gene candidate of interest is actually deleterious. Um, so that variant makes the protein no longer function. So this is done uh, combining several uh, approaches in science. So molecular biology, structural biology to understand the mutation, um, and then cell-based and biochemical analyses in vitro, and more and more making mouse models of these human diseases um, so that we can test therapies and help these children with rare disease while also gleaning fundamentally useful insights that are uh, generally uh, helpful for many more common uh, immune disorders by defining sort of how the human immune system works. So this is the category of, of rare disease, monogenic uh, primary immunodeficiencies that we're gonna talk about today. Um, and one point I like to make, you know, is often those of us in this field are, are sort of asked by reviewers and others or, or people in general thinking about what field they wanna enter and, and do research in, why would you study primary immunodeficiency if it's such a rare disease? Um, and so one point I like to make is, is to sort of remind people that although each individual disease, and we'll go through several examples of these diseases, are, is, is very rare, collectively it's more common, PID is more common than you might think. So there are now uh, 450 or so monogenic diseases or inborn errors of immunity that have been identified with, with distinct gene variants. Um, and so if you think about these collectively, it's the prevalence for primary deficiency is somewhere in between cystic fibrosis and Down syndrome. Um, so these are estimates which vary a bit based on, on your source, but about one in 2000 uh, people will have a primary deficiency. So again, collectively, this is an important burden um, medically for, for people to tackle. Um, and individually, of course, these dramatically affect the quality of life of each of these um, individuals. So studying them is, is useful for, for many reasons. Um, what we'll talk about uh, is what are primary deficiencies. We'll dive into that a little bit more and why, why should we study them. And then we'll spend most of the time going through some examples. And of course, we don't have time to go through an exhaustive list of all of the primary deficiencies, but um, I'd like to highlight for you the ones I listed here and give you examples of how they've been um, informative. And then uh, we'll end with a short example of, of a targeted therapy where the genetic etiology has enabled um, experimental testing of, of new therapies that could be useful more broadly. Um, and I'll conclude with some resources for you if you're interested in learning more and some links to, to papers and things. So as we said, primary immunodeficiencies are caused by um, inherited mutations. Uh, so these are primary immunodeficiencies as opposed to secondary, for example, after HIV infection. Um, and they commonly include recurrent and overwhelming in infections. Um, but one theme that I'll bring up as we go through some of these examples is, in addition to these individuals having difficulty controlling infection, they often will manifest with sort of counterintuitive features of inflammation or autoimmune type phenotypes. 
Um, and we'll, we can talk a little bit about that. Many people study this and think about this. How, on the one hand, can your immune system um, react so poorly to pathogens, but on the other, react so robustly to self-antigens? Um, but this is a common occurrence where there's, in primary immune deficiency, also um, inflammation or lymphoproliferative disease or autoimmunity. Um, another key point about primary immune deficiencies is as an investigator sort of an analyzing these and those pedigrees recruiting these rare cases of severe disease, thinking hard about the type of infection that these individuals suffer from is very helpful um, because it will help you to hypothesize which aspects of our immune system uh, might be defective in those individuals. And so you've learned a lot uh, throughout this course about uh, innate and adaptive immune systems, and we'll go through examples of defects where um, individuals have, have um, defects in, in both of those branches. So for example, we'll talk about some examples where people have um, pyogenic bacteria as their major um, infections that they struggle with. And those individuals typically have difficulty producing adequate antibody or complement responses, uh, which makes sense as you've learned that antibody is important for opsonizing many of these bugs uh, to, to help activate complement. Um, and another example it will go through is, is fungal fungal infections and how that uh, you immediately think about TH17 responses and, and what might be defective there, which of course is helpful as you're thinking about your list of gene variants and, and novel genes that could be playing a role in their phenotype. Um, another point that sometimes it makes it challenging to, to diagnose these primary deficiencies is of course, there's a lot of variation um, in human disease. So this is not as straightforward as, as mouse immunology, which many of you may have had some experience with. Of course, we're outbred populations and there's um, variable penetrance and expressivity. So these are rare. Many physicians are, aren't as um, familiar with some of these phenotypes because they don't come across so many of the patients. Also very early in life, typically the first six months or so, maternal immunoglobulins uh, that are passed on to the fetus can mask these phenotypes. And so it will delay a diagnosis of a primary immunodeficiency. And we'll talk about some uh, screening techniques that have been developed to kind of help with some of these uh, disorders. Um, of course, infections in infants are quite common, and so that can make diagnosis challenging since it's normal for kids to catch colds and things. And so when do you um, sort of realize that this is an abnormal amount of, of um, infection susceptibility? Um, so this is just to show in schematic form sort of one of the, the points that we made, again, in human immunology, that there, there's variation in clinical phenotype. Um, and so this is a challenge that folks in the primary deficiency world are used to grappling with, where you may have a very large pedigree um, and, and multiple individuals sharing the variant of interest. Um, and sometimes their phenotypes are similar, but maybe not exactly the same. And so we have to consider variables like those shown here, where there are other genetic modifiers, maybe sex differences that, that can affect the penetrance and expressivity of the phenotype, um, environmental factors where the individual lives. You've heard a lot about the microbiome, and of course that could change how a single gene defect might result in clinical manifestations, um, epigenetics, and, and other factors. So I think it's important to highlight this just to um, make you all aware, of course, that um, these are very informative so-called experiments of nature where you have effectively human knockouts that are not only teaching us about fundamental immunology, but also helping to treat these individuals, but um, it's not always black and white. So what are the types of monogenic immune disorders? There, there are many. Uh, you could imagine that all the uh, pathways and cell types you've heard about throughout this course, any one of them could be affected and, and, and lead to an immunodeficiency. Um, clearly the most common are those that involve antibody defects, and I'll show you a pie chart here in a moment. Um, th this is one organization structure for how to classify um, monogenic defects, and we have some citations for you down here. Um, combined immunodeficiency, is combined because it affects both cellular and humoral immune responses. So you're thinking about T cells and B cells both being affected. Um, antibody defects are, are its own category. There are immune dysregulations um, that fall more into the auto-inflammatory category. Some phagocyte defects that we'll talk about. Um, intrinsic and innate immune defects, auto-inflammatory diseases, complement defects. And then there are phenocopies of primary immunodeficiencies. Um, and one example of that, uh, that we'll come back to when we talk about TH17s in human disease, um, are autoantibodies to, to cytokines. So if you have an autoantibody that neutralizes the ability of a cytokine to function, you may then have a, an immunodeficiency that's really a phenocopy rather than a genetic cause. So these are general classifications of monogenic 
immune disorders, and this is the pie chart I mentioned. So you can see the majority of patients, if you think of all primary immunodeficiency patients, they suffer from um, some form of an antibody defect. Um, and so when you have antibody defects, you, you tend to see recurrent sinopulmonary infections. Uh, with bacteria that are encapsulated since humoral response is so important for that. And you can see the breakdown of other um, categories of PID, combined immunodeficiencies, congenital defects of phagocytes, um, complement defects, et cetera. So this is showing you the dramatic increase in, in discovery of new monogenic immune disorders over time. Of course, the advent of next generation sequencing really accelerated the identification of, of these diseases. Uh, in the early days, it was very much um, sort of candidate approach where, where you might try to look for um, gene defects that you hypothesize could be defective based on the phenotype. Um, but with next generation sequencing becoming cheaper and cheaper, the number of defects um, are being discovered at a, at a very rapid rate. And now up to close to, to uh, 450 different disease entities and interestingly, we're uh, discovering more and more nuance where, for example, a single gene could have mutations in a different location that cause a completely different immune phenotype. So you could imagine that there, there could be a gene in which a mutation turns up its activity, and we'll talk about one of those examples, and that could lead to uh, an immune phenotype. And different variants in that same gene could cause loss of function and turn off the function of that gene and even though it's the same gene, uh, the different defect causes a completely different uh, clinical phenotype. Um, so this, these numbers will continue to climb, um, and more and more the fraction of these that are um, considered auto-inflammatory diseases will increase. Uh, it's a newer uh, set of disorders, so um, I, I think, I, personally, I'm very excited to, to see more and more monogenic auto-inflammatory diseases discovered. Um, and one thing that I like to point out, um, just to kind of give perspective, is to think about all immune genes, which have, have been estimated in this reference from Elaine Fischer. Um, if you take all the genes in the human genome, so 20,000-ish coding genes, um, and try to think about how many of those are important for immune function, the estimate is something like 1,854. So, uh, approximately 10% of our genes are play some kind of role in our immune system or our immune response. Um, and of those, most of the genes are uh, genes that play a role in the innate immune system. And maybe that makes sense. It's a more ancient um, immune system and, and there are more genes there. And a smaller fraction um, play a role in, in adaptive immunity. And one thing um, that we can do or that Elaine has done and others think about is taking PIDs, primary immunodeficiencies as a whole, and thinking about what it teaches us um, about redundancy in the immune system and about uh, each, each gene at a population genetics uh, level. So one question you might ask yourself, and, and I think is an interesting one to think about is, are mutations in genes of the innate immune system or the adaptive immune system more frequently mutated in, in uh, primary immunodeficiency? And based on what you see here, you might think it's innate because there are so many more innate genes that, that could be mutated. But in fact, the data would show based on all the PIDs that have been discovered so far that causal mutations in adaptive immunity genes are about seven times more frequent uh, than in innate immune genes. And one of the thoughts here is uh, that um, there's a higher fitness cost of adaptive immunity. So this is a schematic that was adapted from uh, colleagues at Yale, Akiko Iwasaki and, and Ruslan Mensatov, and, and in that same review article I, I cited before from Elaine Fischer, conceptualizing this. So this is just, um, these aren't actual measurements, but it's sort of a concept to, to think about. Um, again, and this is helpful if you're somebody studying primary immunodeficiencies and you have your list of gene candidates um, and trying to think about which of them is most probable to be causal in, in this disease. So if we think about fitness cost of the various immune functions that you've learned about throughout this course, um, the sort of uh, on the left here are the lower fitness cost things, things that are constitutive like antimicrobial peptides, secretory IgA or IgM, and then more innate functions. And as you move here to these inducible immune and adaptive immune responses, there's a higher fitness cost, both from energy um, expenditure point of view and also from potential ability to damage self tissues. Um, so as you get into things like uh, B cell responses and TH1, CTLs, those have a higher fitness cost. 
Um, and that negatively correlates with redundancy based on what we know about the number of genes in, in the human genome. So there are more genes encoding these kinds of um, uh, proteins that are important in these, these sorts of functions and, and fewer here. So this might help to explain why if you have a mutation in a gene that's really important for the adaptive immune system, there's really not something else there to compensate for it. Um, because evolutionarily it would be disadvantageous for the host to have a higher uh, fitness cost. And so um, I think it's important at, at the end, that final slide, you'll see some, some resources there, some links um, where I encourage you to, if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, there's a resource called Nomad um, that has the sequences of over 140,000 quote, healthy humans, um, whole genomes are whole exomes, that you can just go to the website and type in your gene of interest and look throughout those large numbers of, of humans that have been sequenced at how many variants are present in that gene. Um, and these, these kinds of resources are used a lot in this, in this research because it allows one to uh, say, well, if there's a gene that basically never shows up in healthy humans in mutated form, where there's a deleterious mutation, it must be critical for survival or reproduction. Um, and so I, I often try to encourage folks, even if you're a mouse immunologist, to, to look through that and help it sort of uh, use it as you think about your hypotheses and your favorite gene. Um, because you can get ideas about those genes that are under stronger purifying uh, selection and, and think about uh, paralogs and redundancy in the system. So, okay, most of the genes are in the adaptive immune system. All right, so um, before we start to go through some, some examples, I uh, just want to emphasize a few points about why studying rare disease can be helpful more broadly. So we talked about already these sort of experiments of nature can uncover fundamental human biology uh, through forward genetics, so we're not hypothesizing anything. We're sort of starting with a sick person and learning from their genomes which gene is important for immune function. And of course, that complements um, animal models. And uh, many of us would argue that, that analysis of people at the extremes of the phenotypic spectrum, um, so of course, these are very severe immune deficiencies, could point to mechanisms that can apply to more subtle phenotypes in larger groups of people. So for example, could it inform us about pathways and, and cell types and programs, gene expression programs that could be relevant for immunodeficiency that develops late in life with aging? Obviously, completely different etiologies, but the fundamental principles defined could be relevant there. These rare diseases also inform drug development. Um, so many, uh, often often people who do uh, whole exome sequencing on many of these patients with rare phenotypes will team up with pharmaceutical companies who are interested in identifying new potential targets. So if, if this child has a mutation that causes him or her to have a weak immune response in a normal person, maybe one could make a drug to target that protein as an immunosuppressive agent. Um, so it can inform drug develop, development uh, to identify new targets and also predict potential side effects. Um, so if you have a human knockout uh, of, a, of a protein that's being targeted by a drug, you can predict what side effects might occur if you inhibit that molecule uh, long term. Um, and it also enables clinical trials uh, that because it, we'll, we'll, I'll mention briefly the Orphan Drug Act, these rare diseases, um, it's, it's easier to test new drugs because these kids desperately need something. Um, and so it can help to bring uh, new drugs that could be useful in, in broader context once they're shown to be safe. Okay, so now we know what primary deficiencies are and, and why one might study them. So let's go through some examples. Um, again, it's not exhaustive, but we'll we'll go through some of these key ones and I'll stop for um, questions once we get through a, a few examples. All right, so I like to start with the classic primary immunodeficiency disease called XLA. It's X-linked A-gamma globulinemia. That means, X-linked means it affects boys because it's, it's, it's um, affecting a gene on the X chromosome. And A-gamma globulinemia means that there's no immunoglobulin. Um, and this was discovered in 1952 by Dr. Bruton. Um, this is from a classic paper where he showed this um, young child looking by electrophoresis at globulins. Um, doing, you can see here, here's the gamma globulin, and the numbers here are, are indicated for the measurement. This is in a normal individual. This was in the patient. You see there's basically no peak for gamma globulin. There's nothing there. And after giving subcutaneous supplementation with immunoglobulin purified from healthy healthy donors, um, now you see you see this number bumps up, and the child responded to that. So uh, he had had severe recurrent infections prior to uh, this Ig supplementation, and so the kinds of infections um, are ones that are that 
come up in individuals who have poor humoral immunity. So bacterial pharyngitis, sinusitis, otitis media, bronchitis, pneumonia. Um, and these are the bugs, again, encapsulated bacteria, also um, enteroviruses um, and some parasitic infections. And so um, later it was discovered that the, this X-linked A gamma globulinemia, it causes profound lack of circulating B cells and NIGs because there's a block in B cell development that Shiv's nicely described to, to everyone where at the pre-B cell stage, when you need the pre-B cell receptor to signal, um, there is no signal. And that's because these kids have a mutation in BTK. Now that kinase, it's a tech family kinase, is called Bruton's tyrosine kinase for Dr. Bruton. Um, and this is equivalent to in T cells, ITK. These tech family kinases uh, phosphorylate PLC. And that's upstream of calcium signaling. So you heard about an antigen receptor signaling. ITAM receptors activate multiple signaling pathways, including calcium flux. And so that can't happen when you don't have BTK. And therefore, they lose their B cells because they can't get through the pre-B cell stage. Um, so this was this is the sort of classic um, primary immunodeficiency. And one thing that it, it I like to highlight that um, is it helps identify carriers of XLA. So whenever you have an X-linked disease, it affects males, which makes sense because they only have one X, whereas females have two Xs, so they have a wild-type copy that, that can often compensate. Um, and this X inactivation happens uh, in the embryo, an early stage of development, um, where females, in order to control for gene dosage, inactivate one of the two Xs. And this is done randomly, which is nicely illustrated by calico cats. So I think this is a really cute photo that, that shows, um, since this fur coat is encoded on the X chromosome, you can see that cells that have inactivated one versus the other X um, lead to this, this pattern of the calico cat. It's also called lionization, since Mary Lyon in 1962 described this um, X inactivation phenomenon. So what you see in XLA, typically mothers of um, children, boys who have, have XLA, uh, or daughters of, of men who have had XLA, you see a, a severe skewing. It's non-random. So if either X chromosome would be, you know, functional, then it should be random, like in this calico cat. But what you see in the case of XLA carriers is, is depicted here. So on the top, it's showing you a normal male, one X chromosome. And so this, this blue guy is the one that's being used, and it has a normal copy of BTK. So B cells in the bone marrow are able to pass this pre-B cell stage where they need that BCR signal that depends on BTK. That happens normally, and now the, the B cell goes on to be an imager IgM-expressing B cell. In an affected male who only has one X chromosome um, and, and that X chromosome has a BTK mutation, there is no signal being transduced here through the BCR. So B cell development is arrested. There are no B cells. There is no antibody. So they look like that child that Dr. Bruton had cared for. Whereas the carrier females um, will end up having basically all wild type B cells in the periphery because if they inactivate the defective BTK, then it, they're using the wild type copy and those cells can persist. Whereas if they inactivate the normal copy, those cells can't pass through development. And so in their peripheral blood, you'll see a severe skewing where you would expect, for example, in monocytes that, that don't depend uh, or other cell types that don't depend so much on BTK, you'll see a 50-50 mixture. Here you see skewing, and that's uh, helpful for identifying carriers and, and thinking about um, the importance of BTK in, in B-cell biology. So BTK is an example of where you have B-cells and agam and glomerulinemia, B-cell defects and agam. Um, but another disease that also incorporates B-cell defects um, as well as T-cell defects, so this is where this word combined comes in, remember that cellular and humoral defects, severe combined immunodeficiency, SCID, is another form of primary immunodeficiency that has been studied for some time, and there are many different gene defects that can cause SCID. Um, the kinds of infections these kids get are sort of what you would predict if you could, if you have inefficient uh, cell-mediated immunity. You get opportunistic infections with viruses, uh, fungi, mycobacteria. You need T cells to, to control these, and uh, you have uh, infections that are consistent with humoral defects, as we've said multiple times. The encapsulated bacteria. So these kids get very, very sick very early in life, um, and in humans there are multiple forms that are sort of. Um, described based on whether the children lack T cells and B cells and NK cells or varieties of, of each of those cell types. Um, and you can see 
if you sort of follow this diagram, which you have in your slides, various genes here in green that are responsible for causing that phenotype or can be responsible. Um, so SCID is, of course, a very uh, serious disease that can cause death early in life. Um, some of you may recognize this picture. This is the, the famous boy in a bubble uh, from the 1970s and, and 80s. His name is David uh, Vetter. He was born to a couple who um, had had a son previously who died of infection at around six months old when, when maternal IG wanes. Um, and it was at a time when they didn't understand why, but they knew that that boys, uh, families that had boys who were affected with this, if the couple were to get pregnant again and have a male, they had a 50% chance that this this son would also uh, be affected with skids. So um, this family had lost their, their first son and when they had another child who ended up being male, immediately after birth was put into a bubble. And uh, that was to protect him from exposure to the various uh, infections we just talked about that can affect skid patients. Um, so these are more pictures of him growing up in that bubble. He lived in this state to protect him from infection for, for 12 years. Um, and you can see NASA made him a special suit so he could experience going outside. Um, but as he got older and around 12, it was more and more important to, to um, help try to treat him so he could uh, you know, live more of a normal life. And so he uh, had a bone marrow transplant from his sister, uh, which unfortunately left, led to him getting lymphoma. He died from lymphoma associated with EBV. Uh, in the in the donor graft. And so uh, he lived from about 1971 to 1984. Um, and about 10 years later in 1993, the genetic basis of this X-linked skid um, was defined. And, and that gene was found to be the IL-2 receptor gamma, IL-2RG. Um, but this is a nice example, I think, where studying a human disease really just show, shows you that what we know is only the tip of the iceberg. So that gene is called IL-2-RG because at the time it was known to be a subunit of the IL-2 receptor. Um, but of course, with all icebergs, there's a lot more that, that uh, wasn't known at the time. Um, and what people realized, because around the same time, uh, knockout mice had been becoming more and more prevalently used and a knockout, a mouse knockout of IL-2 showed that T cells were still there but these X-linked skid kids um, didn't have T-cells. So why is this IL-2 receptor gamma chain important for T-cell development and also B-cell activation? Um, wasn't really understood at the time. And that led investigators, Warren Leonard and others, to, to sort of hypothesize, well, could it be that this chain of the IL-2 receptor that previously was shown just to be important for IL-2, could it be important for other cytokines? And as we now know, this gene encodes the common gamma chain, which is important for many cytokine receptors to, to signal and listing them for you here. So IL-7 uh, receptor signaling defects are what cause the T-cell development um, problems and B-cell activation is secondary to IL-4 and IL-21 defects. Um, so this, this example of a human disease led people to ask questions that otherwise might not have been hypothesized, at least not as, uh, as quickly. Um, the other aspect of, of SCID that I think is, is useful um, to, to talk about for this audience is that um, now, because of the severity of this disease, um, and of course it's not practical for, for kids to live in, in bubbles, um, the need was recognized to identify these kids as early as possible uh, so that a bone marrow transplant could be performed and, and reconstitute their immune uh, systems with, with healthy uh, T and B cells. And so this is um, going back to T cell development um, where you learned about VDJ recombination and this amazing process to produce very diverse antigen receptors that can recognize an, ar an array of different uh, peptides. And what happens during VDJ recombination um, ends up producing these TREX, T-cell receptor excision circles. Um, and Jennifer Puck and others had, had uh, spearheaded an effort and really pushed hard to use the presence of TREX, measurement of, of TREX in newborn babies as a way to identify, sort of screen all babies for T-cell lymphopenia. So basically low, low T-cells that would occur if you had mutations that would lead to SCID. And so now uh, this is this is a sort of schematic showing you newborn screening. So um, as many of you know, when, when babies are born, they get heel pricks that will, and then the blood spots are, are put on Guthrie cards that are used for multiple things, metabolic screens, as well as uh, TREK assays. So here these dried uh, blood spot punches are used to extract DNA and do quantitative uh, PCR to uh, see if they sort of pass the threshold of normal for, for TREKs. And any of these children 
who have low TRECs are then worked up further to, to check um, more extensively if they actually have defects in, in T-cell development that would be suggestive of SCID. Um, and this is just to show that um, as of 2018, all newborns, all, all states in the U.S. Uh, do newborn screening, um, and that enables early detection. And I'll show you in a, in a couple slides why that is important um, and how that's translated into useful outcomes for the children. Um, but before I do that, I just want to make a, a note to circle back to um, some of the genes. So I listed a few of them on that chart where sort of T, B, and N, K uh, presence or absence. Um, this is showing a pie chart. On the left is a pie chart of SCID genotypes that were known um, discovered before newborn screening. And so X-linked SCID, this IL-2 receptor gamma chain or common gamma chain deficiency is, is here. And that was the majority of SCID babies that were identified before there was um, newborn screening. There are a lot of uh, other genes you see here. So ADA, um, RAG, et cetera, that, that uh, you have learned about. RAG is important for VDJ recombination. And so you won't have T cells produced if you don't have that, that enzyme. But after newborn screening, you'll see that these proportions have, have changed because this is an unbiased method of checking all babies to try to uh, learn as early as possible whether they have this immunodeficiency. Um, now you can see there's there's a spectrum. Um, new genes have been discovered, and about 23% or so, although this is a little outdated, but 23% or so are unknown or unspecified. Um, so they have very low TRECs, but the gene is unknown. Uh, they, they get screened for a panel of the known causative genes for SCID. Um, but, but many of us in the field are really excited about cases like that, whether it's SCID or another phenotype where uh, there's potentially new genes to be discovered and, and uh, new biology to, to work out that would inform um, why these kids have low T cells. Um, so what, why does it matter? Okay, so you do this, this um, blood spot and now you see they have TREKS. Maybe you're not gonna put them in a bubble. Maybe you give them some antibiotics and other, other treatments, but really the cure for these skid kids is to give them a bone marrow transplant, a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, um, and to do that early in life. And so these are data that really stress that point and why newborn screening is helpful. So on the y-axis here is probability of survival, and on the x is years of life. Um, and if you look, uh, the, the kids with the worst survival are those who get a transplant after three and a half years old, uh, three and a half months old, um, and they have an active infection, which, of course, they're highly susceptible to. So uh, if they don't get transplanted early, they're likely to get an infection. And then their survival uh, curve is, is, um, is not as good as if they were to have a transplant early in life. So this top line here is showing you the babies that get transplanted when they're younger than three and a half months old. They really do very well. Um, and so identifying them early and transplanting them while they're young before they have infections is, is important. And these uh, newborn screening and, and TREKS are really helpful for that. So I, I will pause here and ask Shiv if there are any questions I should take. Yeah, so there's one question which you maybe you're going to cover it later on. And that relates to autoimmunity seen in immunodeficiencies and how these are tackled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's something a lot of us um, think a lot about. But, um, yeah, there are many different diseases where I think the answer for why they have an immunodeficiency and an autoimmune disorder at the same time might be different. But some you could think of uh, include sort of selection defects, where if you have signal transduction defects in lymphocytes, let's say T cells or B cells, um, that alters the selection of those lymphocytes, um, they, they may come out into the periphery and, and therefore have um, tolerance issues where you can have TCRs and BCRs that recognize self um, because your balance of, of signaling in the thymus and signaling in the periphery is, is skewed. So this, this happens. There are also mutations that cause defects um, that on the one hand affect lymphocyte function in one direction. So um, I'm thinking of examples where B cell function is reduced. Humoral defects are clear and they get recurrent infections because of that. But on the other hand, the same gene with the same mutation in innate immune cells, uh, macrophages, for example, when you lack that gene, you have a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokine production. And so that causes barrier tissues often where you have microbial exposures um, to become infiltrated with a lot of immune cells. And that causes an auto-inflammatory autoimmune type um, phenotype. Okay. There's, yes, one, Go ahead. there's one question with an acronym that I don't understand. Maybe you will. 
what if you have a VUS in one of the genes for skid and low T cells? Can you transplant mm-hmm. for that? Yeah, it's a great question. So VUS is variant of unknown significance, which comes up a lot. Um, so th- this is probably coming from from a clinician, and this is the challenge. I think you know more and more clinical whole exomes are are being done which is great, but often those are done just on the proband, just on the sick child, um, which is which is helpful. But in the most, the most useful analysis is to also do his or her parents. Because for example, if you saw that same VUS, variant of unknown significance in healthy relatives, it would help you make this decision, right? Because if you have perfectly healthy relatives carrying the same variant, you might be less inclined to think that that skid gene variant is relevant for the phenotype. Um, so there's not an easy answer there, but in general, my, my, my thought, my suggestion is to be very cautious with variants of unknown significance, because remember, all that means is if you align the nucleotide sequence from that child with a reference genome, which a reference is just, a, 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 you know, one person's genome. And there are a lot of conversations now, actually, about how can we make a better sort of composite reference genome for human genes that would help with this a little bit, because um, comparing a, tri- a, a patient to one healthy human, it, it, it's a variant of unknown significance just because it's different from that reference. So short answer is um, it, it, it involve, you, you need to do more than just see a, a variant of un- unknown significance to feel like that variant could be causal. And checking family members helps with that. Okay, now I understand that term from exome sequencing. Then there's another question. If do skid subjects who get transplants does this result in host rejection or because they did not have an innate immune system is the transplant accepted well? So this is saying mm-hmm. would a transplant work well if you had a defect in innate immunity? Right. So in general, when you're giving a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, you, you, you pay attention to matching with the donor. But since these kids are immunodeficient and they don't have uh, robust T and B cell responses, they're less likely to, to reject the graft, and maybe what you're also asking about is graft versus host, um, and this is where uh, matching matching is important. And transplant physicians are, are very good at doing this. And kids who get transplanted early in life do very well; their outcomes are, are are great. But yes, thinking about the fact that they're immunodeficient to begin with, they're less likely to reject the graft. And other single gene disorders in which you have an allergic phenotype. Mm, good question. There are single gene disorders, one of which we'll talk about in where you have hyper IgE. Um, that's, uh, so STAT3 mutations we'll, we'll mention. And some studies suggest that they do have more, uh, some of them have more allergies. There's another one that's DOC8 deficiency where they also have uh, high IgE and an increased prevalence of food allergy, for example. So there, there are a couple of examples there that, um, yes, there's high IgE, but it's not sort of an overwhelming uh, allergic response. Those kids with DOC8 and STAT3 mutations have a lot of things going on, and allergy is sort of a smaller part of their picture. Um, one thing I think a lot about and, and have talked uh, with, with colleagues, Steph Eisenbarth, for example, um, who's one of their, our lecturers about, I think one thing I don't, I am unaware of that I think we, must exist, but we just haven't um, sequenced the right populations of people are individuals who have gene defects for TH2 responses. You'll see, we're going to go through some examples, of course, of B cell defects. We've already started to talk about also TH1 and TH17 defects. But I don't know of examples, maybe you do, of TH2 defects, um, so single genes that cause TH2s not to work well. We think of TH2 responses as being important in allergy, but of course, evolutionarily, they're there to protect from helminths and other kinds of infections. So in order to identify individuals with single gene defects affecting TH2 pathways, one would imagine you'd have to sequence populations of humans that experience a high parasite burden. Um, to see those who, who can't yeah. control those well. I think that hasn't been done. One other disease in which there are some allergies are in Omen syndrome. So <clears> you <throat> maybe just dysregulated Tregs, not enough. And that right. Okay. So that's right. the questions for now. Oh, there's one more. Uh, T cells <laughs> get trained in the thymus, but if NK cells recognize self through having high polymorphisms in genes, do you ever see cases where you get GVHD from NK cells? but not T-cells. This may not be a question that is relevant here. I don't know. You can think about it. You get GVHD from NK cells. 
Of course, NK cells are very important in GVHD. Uh, they are very important. You know, that's why you match so carefully as well, uh, as far as MNC is concerned. But uh, right, yeah, not not directly relevant for PID, but you would imagine missing self uh, causing NK reactivity that could affect bone marrow transplant. Yeah. Okay, why don't you keep going? Okay. Excellent. Okay. Um, Right, so we have until 6.15. Okay. Uh, so we'll move on to additional examples. So, so another um, disease that touches on some of the genes and proteins that you've heard about for B-cell responses, it's a set of disorders that are categorized as having hyper-IgM. So as the name suggests, they have high IgM and often don't have very uh, good class-switched immunoglobulin. Hyper-IgM is related to uh, the next um, set of disorders I'll talk about called common variable immunodeficiency, CVID. But here, um, this is showing a, a follicle with a germinal center. This is KI67 stain, which is proliferation. And you can see in a healthy lymph node, this is from an old 1995 paper, um, you see these proliferating cells. But in patients who have hyper-IgM, they have uh, much less proliferation and, and germinal center responses. But B cells are present. Um, they make low specific antibody against antigens that require T-cell help, um, and they have severely impaired class switch. So um, normally when this class is in person, I would ask folks to, to throw out ideas for what genes these could be defective. Hopefully you're thinking about some of them. And of course, they would include CD40 ligand and CD40, uh, which uh, Shiv so nicely described as being important for T cells to help B cells. So humans who have mutations in, in that, that pathway or in uh, genes that are important for class switch will have hyper-IgM because they can't class switch. And, and then they uh, have susceptibility to extracellular pathogens. Um, the related uh, set of disorders, and this is a very broad set. Um, this is probably the most common. Uh, you remember that pie chart where antibody defects was such a big fraction of what we're talking about for human disease. This is a big part of that. So it's CVID, common variable immunodeficiency. And technically, uh, the individuals have to have these features to be called CVID. So they have recurrent sinopulmonary infections, low IgG, uh, poor vaccine responses, and be older than four years old. So this is a big kind of catch-all for people who have um, antibody defects. And it's thought that most of the CVID is probably not monogenic. It's complicated, uh, multifactorial that would lead to later in life having poor um, immunoglobulin responses. But a small fraction, something like 2 to 10% of them is estimated to be monogenic. And of those monogenic causes, there are a lot of different genes listed for you here. Um, including CTLA-4 and LRBA, which, which go hand in hand. I don't touch on it much. Maybe you've already heard people talk about this. So here, CTLA-4 haploinsufficiency um, causes uh, CVID and lymphocytic infiltration into gut, lung, and, and brain. And LRBA phenocopies that. Um, and the thought is that this is mechanistically linked because LRBA is important uh, for recycling of CTLA-4. So if you have biallelic loss of LRBA, it looks a lot like losing one copy of CTLA-4. So this is a, a pretty large fraction of, of the monogenic causes of these antibody defects. And then the other set are these PI3 kinase disorders that uh, we'll come back to at the end. Both of these are heterozygous that cause too much PI3 kinase signaling and, and can lead to antibody defects. Um, so now I'll, I'll go um, through two, two disorders, MSMD and CMC. One, the first is, is illustrative of human genes that are really important for control or, or Th1 responses that are important to control mycobacteria. And the second is for Th17 responses. So this set of, of disorders have been studied by uh, many people, including notably Jean-Laurent Casanova, um, who uh, identified individuals with what, what they call Mendelian susceptibility to mycobacterial disease. Uh, of course, as the name suggests, these, ki these kids have susceptibility to um, mycobacterium that are intracellular bugs that require Th17 response. And many of these were identified in Europe where uh, folks, folks get um, BCG vaccine. Um, and that vaccine is made from live attenuated mycobacterium bovis. Um, that usually in immunocompetent people doesn't make them sick. But if you have a gene defect that doesn't allow you to control intracellular bacterial responses, so um, I'll show you some of the genes on the next slide, 
you end up having a you know severe reaction to the BCG vaccine. So this is an example of BCG lymphadenitis. This is disseminated BCG in a primary immunodeficiency. Um, and there's a spectrum of, of phenotypes that can show up in these kids after their vaccination. And what if you put a lot of the defects that have been studied together, uh, this is this is sort of the picture. So mycobacteria come into the phagocyte. Um, and that phagocyte um, produces IL-12 to help tell T-cells to make interferon gamma. So this is the TH1 sort of axis. Um, and so if you have mutations in any of these things that are red and, and to some extent the things that are blue, you'll get uh, this MSMD phenotype. So kids have defects in the subunits of, of IL-12 uh, cytokine in the IL-12 receptor. Um, in uh, interferon gamma receptor itself. So if once the T cell, if it can make normal interferon gamma, but the phagocyte can't receive that interferon gamma, it won't be able to kill this intracellular pathogen, STAT1 mutations as well, and IRF8. Um, so this has enabled directly in humans to identify a lot of the molecules that very consistent with, with mouse models are, are key for TH1 immunity to control mycobacteria. Um, on the other hand, for TH17 biology, the human primary immunodeficiencies that, that you see in humans um, typically are, are lumped together in a category called CMC. This is chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis. Um, so they end up having candida albicans um, uh, difficulties and, and defective antifungal immunity. So you can see in these photos here, um, it can be very debilitating. Um, and the genes that have been identified affect um, proteins that are important for sensing fungus. So Dectin-1, CARD-9, um, TH17 biology, so production of IL-17 cytokines themselves or the receptor or signaling molecules, STAT3, RR, Gamma-T. And the most common cause of CMC is actually from heterozygous gain-of-function mutations in STAT1. And I'll circle back to that. Um, there are some ideas about how TH17s and TH1s can counter-regulate each other, um, and, and now some new data that might, might connect to why a STAT1 hyperactivation will cause CMC. Um, and then there's also a, at least a fraction of these individuals who uh, um, appear not to have a direct mutation in these TH17 biology genes, but rather, as I mentioned in a previous slide, make antibodies, autoantibodies that neutralize IL-17 uh, cytokines. And those then phenocopy this, this CMC-type phenotype. This is the, the STAT3 mutations that I mentioned when in response to the question about IgE. So this is um, hyper IgE syndrome is, is sometimes, or Job syndrome is what it's called. And it's called that because these um, children have boils, as you can see here, um, and epithelial bacterial and fungal infections. They get recurrent shingles um, and also have some non-hematopoietic features, some, some face and, and bone, heart, blood vessel, brain, lungs can all be affected because STAT3, of course, is expressed pretty ubiquitously. So these are dominant negative. They turn down STAT3, um, and that helps to explain why they have fungal infection, because without uh, STAT3, your TH17s won't differentiate well. This is all sort of the, the mutations in these pathways were nicely summarized in a, in a review a while back now from Josh Milner and, and Steve Holland, who, who are leaders in primary deficiency studies. Um, and it shows you, so here's candida albicans at the mucosal barrier, and you see mutations that affect dect, dectin-1 or CARD-9 uh, show up in these kids, as we talked about STAT-1, STAT-3 mutations, uh, IL-17, IL-17 receptor, and antibodies against against those cytokines. Um, so it, again, helps to really paint a picture and emphasize directly in humans these key molecules. So you could imagine if you see a patient with CMC or MSMD or SCID um, who has this, this same kind of phenotype but is negative for a mutation that is convincing, so not a VUS, but, but, but a convincing mutation that you can work up mechanistically and show um, is deleterious. If they don't have one of those mutations, then it sets the stage for you to discover new, new proteins and molecules that you can add to this pathway. And I think that's what excites many, many folks in this field. I'll circle back now to the stat one gain of function and, and uh, balance between type one and type 17 immunity. This is a slide I, I added after the fact, so I can, we can send these new slides to you. This is a very recent paper. Um, from Lionakis at, at, at NIH, where he's studying air deficiency. Um, so we've, I'm sure you've heard about air deficiency from Dr. Anderson. So this is loss of uh, central tolerance in these APESED patients. Um, and what Lionakis's group showed is that it's sort of been a little bit unclear why these, these children who have deficiency in air have CMC. They, that's one of their features. Um, and 
there in 2010, there were two back-to-back uh, JM papers that showed this neutralizing cytokine effect. And that's true, and that happens, but it appears to be a small fraction of the patients, and, and they made mouse models, and, and something like 10% of the mice have neutralizing anti-IL-17 or um, IL-23 antibodies, but that certainly didn't explain all the fungal susceptibility because close to 100% of the mice uh, had susceptibility to, to Canada albicans if they challenged them. So there must be something more going on. Um, and what this paper nicely describes is that it, one one contributing factor seems to be potentially a major contributing factor is that autoreactive T cells uh, that are present in patients that lack air and mice that lack air um, migrate into the tissue in the, and they're looking primarily in the cheek tissue where they get oral Canada infection. And you see all these interferon gamma producing cells there, CD4s and CD8s, making a lot of interferon gamma and activating a lot of STAT1 in the epithelial cell that leads to epithelial cell death. Um, And because even though you have normal TH17 responses in these mice, because the epithelial barrier is being damaged um, by these high inflammatory cytokines, Candida albicans is able to um, penetrate the barrier and, and cause CMC. So this is a, an exciting new development for air deficiency and probably also relates to the, the common cause of CMC, which is that one gain of function, which would you know, copy this sort of a response. Um, so this, these are still developing fields and mechanisms continue to be uh, worked out, but that um, falls into the category of CMC as well. So we've talked about some, some uh, T and B cell defects. There are also innate defects. We mentioned that adapt- mutations in adaptive um, immune genes are, are more common than innate. Uh, but there are some phagocyte defects that I list for you here. Um, I won't go through each of them, but um, you can see this this table here. One that I will mention is chronic granulomatous disease, which is from defective ROS production. CGD is a whole category of, of disease. And um, these children have defects in producing RS because they have mutations in subunits of the NADPH oxidase. Um, so each of these subunits, then sort of their proportion in, in CGD are, are shown. So the most common is in, has mutations in CYBD, uh, that encodes this, this subunit here, and that causes X-linked chronic granulomatous disease, where these kids have a lot of granulomas, they try to um, wall off infection. They have severe recurrent infections with catalase-positive bugs, um, and also are at very high risk for IBD. So another example of primary deficiency and inflammation going, going hand in hand. And each of these other subunits can also be mutated to phenocopy um, this, this same disease. So that's an important subset of innate defects. And there are many more. So you've heard about air. There are patients with FOXP3 deficiency, patients with deficiency in TLR signaling, MIDE88 and IRAC4. I didn't mention stat 3 gain of function. I think it's very, um, you know, I'll spend a little bit of time in a moment going through another one of these examples where there's gain of function in a pathway that can cause disease. This is something that human immunology offers that wouldn't um, have necessarily come from mouse work. Because of course, in, in mouse immunology, you're usually knocking out genes. Um, and so you can see what happens in the absence of a gene, but it's, it's difficult to predict what mutations might cause gain of function. So these humans uh, have been enlightening with that. And these gain of function patients have uh, lipid proliferation, autoimmunity, recurrent infections, uh, etc. I briefly mentioned CTLA-4 and LRBA. Um, and then pediatric kinase gain of function, which on that CVID pie chart was a, was a big fraction, which we'll have some time that I'll, I'll go briefly through. But now I, I'd like to give some time if there are any more questions. Are you there, Shiv? Sorry, Carrie, I don't think there's any question that hasn't been answered. So some Perfect. questions for the MSN. I agree. What was that? I agree. Keep going. Oh, you agree? Thank Wonderful, you. Terry. Thank you. All right, I will keep going. Um, we have about uh, six minutes or so, so that's, that should be fine. So I just wanna give one example, circling back to the pediatric kinase, of targeted therapy um, that was tested and, and is being pursued because of uh, identification of one of these um, diseases. So this is, this the diseases I mentioned, again, in that CVID pie chart, activated pediatric kinase delta syndrome, APDS, um, which I've studied, Shiv has studied, many folks I think are, are learning from, from this human disease. Um, what do these kids have? Well, they have recurrent respiratory infections, which are consistent with humoral defects, um, lymphoproliferative disease, and susceptibility to herpes viruses, EBV and CMV in particular. Um, and what was found is that these kids had uh, sort of a whole set of them. It was co-discovered by multiple groups. Um, and what they had in common were, were these features. And when you did whole exome sequences, 
people realize that many of them had mutations across this gene uh, P110 delta. So PIK3CD is the gene, P110 delta is the protein, and each one of these here with a line is a different mutation. Um, and so a similar phenotype, same gene affected, and later it was found that the binding partner of P110 delta, P85, um, can also have these mutations. Typically it's a, a splice site mutation where you lose exon 11 and it stays in frame. So basically what, what each of these mutations do um, is affect the ability of this regulatory subunit to inhibit the catalytic subunit. So bottom line is either mutation header, in heterozygous form it turns up P3 kinase signaling. That's why it's activated P3 kinase delta. And you can see the data here uh, if you look at patients at baseline or after stimulation at phospho-AKT. This is that kinase that Shiv mentioned when he described pediatric kinase signaling. And uh, as he mentioned, that's a very central signaling pathway. And many people had done a lot of studies to try to understand when you lose this kinase, what happens. Um, but when these patients showed up, it's, it began to teach us what happens when you, when you turn up sort of too much of a good thing. Um, so the kids have humoral defect, as mentioned. Why is that? So people can use flow cytometry to try to look at uh, differentiation and just take blood samples from these kids and look at how well the cells mature. This marker CD27 is a marker for memory B cells. And you can see that they have a lower frequency of memory B cells and a higher frequency of these immature transitional B cells, which helps to explain why they don't go on to make robust antibody responses. And briefly, the, the herpes viruses susceptibility is likely because these T cells having very high pediatric kinase, they proliferate, proliferate a lot in vivo. And you can see these kids have very big lymph nodes, and I'll show you a PET scan here in a moment. They, they really light up. They're proliferating a lot, highly glycolytic. Um, and what ends up happening on the right here is a patient. If you just look at this top right quadrant, these are naive T cells. These are your T cells that have come out of the thymus and they're ready to respond. Um, and these others here are, are memory, different memory cell populations. And you can see, even though these kids are quite young, they don't really have many naive cells left. This is a control here. Uh, so normally you'll have around half of them, at least half of the cells would be naive at their age. Um, and they're not. So they're differentiating. And this is, again, emphasizing this too much of a good thing. This pro-growth, pro-survival pathway, rather than making it a sort of super immune system, it's causing burnout of these T cells. Um, and so you can quantify that over lots of patients and you see that there are a lot of effectors um, in their blood. And why would having a lot of effectors cause an immunodeficiency? Uh, the answer is that because they proliferated to such an extent in vivo, shown here with PET scan, you can see this is basically glucose uptake, really large lymph nodes and spleen in these kids. Um, and this proliferation is happening so that when we take, it's happening in vivo. So when we take a blood sample, and we ask those T cells to proliferate in vitro, they can't anymore. So that's what's shown here. This is a stimulation with a PHA, it's a mitogen. And these patient cells, you can see, see they really can't proliferate. So there's reduced proliferation and increased markers of terminal differentiation and senescence. Um, and that goes hand in hand with, with shortened telomeres because they proliferated so much. So you put this together and they have B cell development issues. Um, and there's a lot of new biology from mouse models of this disease from uh, Pam Schwarzberg, Stu Tangy, many others, Klaus Ockenhog, um, that have shown details of how this works and how TFHs are affected and, and can't help for, for antibody class switch, how um, T cell memory responses are, are reduced. Um, but what it certainly introduced is the idea that, wait, if these kids are sick because they have too much pediatric kinase signaling, a very easy way or, or a logical way uh, to treat them is to counterintuitively give them an immunosuppressive drug that targets the pediatric kinase pathway. So this is that pathway again to remind you. Um, here's pediatric kinase getting recruited to phosphotyrosines. And then you have recruitment of um, pH domain containing proteins that bind to PIP3, including AKT and then downstream mTOR signaling. So these kids were treated with rapamycin, which again is an immunosuppressive drug, um, and that inhibits mTOR, which, which um, improved lymphoproliferation and helped these kids. But of course, the ideal therapy would target the mutant kinase itself. Um, and so now um, this has been tried. This is showing, uh, it's been a very small trial, um, and that's been extended now and, and is encouraging. So this is showing that these kids who have high phospho-AKT, probably easiest to see here. They have very high phospho-AKT. As you titrate in the drug, it reduces that kinase activity, as you would expect. So the mutations don't prevent this small molecule from working. Um, and that could be tested in these kids in vivo um, because of the Orphan Drug Act, which I briefly mentioned. It's 
It was set up to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to help these very severe rare disease patients um, because it wasn't sort of financially tractable to do so since it's such a small number of individuals. And um, because of the toxic effects in the 50s of drugs like thalidomide, it had become very, I mean, it's important to regulate these trials, right? Because we don't want these sorts of um, side effects to happen in individuals. But because of that, um, it's very expensive to develop drugs because you have to um, you know, do a lot, large numbers of, of patients and extensive analyses. Um, and so the, the definition of a rare disease is that it affects fewer than 200,000 people, which for these primary immunodeficiencies, it's, it's um, 